with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 21st, 2017, and this is episode uh, 2136 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, with the exception of some rewinds next week and the uh, Christmas special tomorrow, the last episode of the Survival Podcast for the year, not in all, um, but I do hope I bring you guys a good one today. I decided to do kind of an expert council show today. I only have four questions in the can from the expert council, one from Harris, two from Snow, and one from Collins. I have three little segments myself I'll cover today, but I figured it was just a good idea to clear the bucket, so to speak, for the council so we can hit the ground fresh running in the first week of January. Uh, so what do I have for you? Backup heating from Stephen Harris, appropriate time. Uh, cooking grass-fed beef with Keith Snow. And working with copper cookware with Keith Snow. And the carnivore diet from Gary Collins. I also have a segment called, What the Hell is Up with the Drop in Bitcoin? And it's a pretty easy answer. It's Bitcoin Cash. Uh, and I'll tell you about a little sneaky trick I feel like Coinbase pulled that cost us all some dadgone money uh, that would have been easy money to make. Uh, also, the advantages of flow-through wicking beds. I'm going to be talking about that today. I've been getting questions about those uh, as I've been doing this aquaponics educational video series. And I got a little end segment just to say thank you guys to, to all of you who have supported me for so long. Uh, it should be a, a good show today. I think it'll be a, an appropriate way to end the year. I'm in a good mood, if you can tell. Like One of the things I've been bitching about lately is how cold it was going to be during my time off. Uh, not because I'm going to be cold, because when it gets really, really cold here, we haven't gotten everything quite the way I want it. Stuff breaks, and it makes our life harder. Uh, I don't mind myself personally being cold, but busted pipes and things like that I don't like. And having multiple days well below freezing sucks. And we were supposed to have Christmas Christmas night overnight low next Monday. Was supposed to be what? 21 degrees. I am from Pennsylvania. I don't even bat my eyes at 21 degrees at times. But in Texas, that's damn cold, especially with all the water systems that we have out there. But uh, we have gotten a reprieve. It's going to be a much milder cold front coming through than they had originally planned, unless, of course, it changes again. Anyway, we're getting all prepped for it. I wanted to point something out today. Today is the solstice, the winter solstice. This is the shortest day of the year and the longest night. And we'll have that three-day pause that I talked about on Tuesday. And then on the 25th, the sun will rise one degree in the sky. Just a good thing to think about right now. You know, I, uh, I'm not a pagan, but I have a lot of respect for the pagan faith. I've actually done a lot of, or I should say faiths, right, with an S. I've done a lot of research into it. I think one of the things that's really grounding about the pagan, this is what I call a, view, a faith, called a viewpoint, is the attachment to the seasons and the, the changes in our, our world. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And, you know, Christmas is about a, a new opportunity, a new chance And uh, understanding that it coincides with this traditional pagan holiday is, uh, I think, a really good thing for us all to feel a bit more united. 
So just something to think about as we head out today on our journey together. Um, we have a history segment today from the year 84 A.D. called The Battle of Mons Grapius. In late summer, Agricola and his legions have set up camp in Mons Grapius, a hill in northern Scotland. After years of trying to get the Caledonians to face them in open battle, uh, they have finally succeeded by seizing the grain storages just after harvest. A little aside there, that'll get your freaking attention. It's fixing to be winter in Scotland and you have no food and all these Roman guys have it and are going, you want it, come get it. That, that'll, that'll pick a fight, right? Facing possible starvation over the winter, 30,000 Keldonian warriors have gathered under Chief Caligacus to throw the Romans out. The Romans were outnumbered with only 17,000 men and the Caledonians had held the high ground. Agricola deployed his, far, deployed his foreign auxiliaries as his main line with his cavalry on the wings while holding his legionnaires in reserve. The Caledonians opened the battle with a chariot charge but were driven off by Roman skirmishers and cavalry. The chariots were pulled by two horses. Whoops, not a good idea. Why? Here you go. Because as soon as one is killed, its corpse prevented the chariot from moving. Although the Caledonians held the high ground, the Roman infantry charged uphill while the cavalry made a flanking attack. The battle soon turned into a rout as the lightly armored Caledonians fled into the nearby woods and they were, there were a reported 10,000 Caledonian dead and captured at only 360 Roman casualties. Although these numbers are disputed, this was the most northern battle Rome ever fought and the last against the war chariots. After this battle, the entire island of Britain was under Roman control, but it would not stay that way. My take by David Verne, who wrote this segment for us in the TSP Wiki at tspwiki.com. Agricola was recalled to Rome and given a triumph, after which he retired from public life. It isn't known whether Domitian did this out of jealousy or it was a reward for ten years of hard service in the north. A fleet sailed around the tip of Scotland to confirm that Britain was an island, and after that, Rome withdrew from Scotland. Eventually, the emperor Hadrian will build a wall across the island, dividing it in two. The Romans decided it would be best to leave the Scottish tribes alone to fight their mortal enemies, other Scottish tribes. So the Empire of Rome, after taking control of this piece of ground, decided that since there was a warlike people there who wanted to kill each other constantly, that the best thing to do was to wall it off, walk away, and let them kill each other until they worked their shit out. And as long as they weren't causing trouble for anybody else, screw it. Hmm, I wonder if there's anywhere in the world today that we could apply that logic. I leave it to you to draw your own conclusions on that. Anyway, guys, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, my first uh, question is for... Stephen Harris on backup heating. It's really not even a question. It's Steve expanding on some things that we've covered in the past to give you some great advice, especially as we head into, you know, again, the longest night of the year as we stand at the precipice, for many of us, of a very cold, cold winter. Steve, take it away. Hi, it's Steve Harris call, calling in for the expert panel to answer your question. Now, if you remember last week... I had a guy who emailed in and wanted to know if there was a way for me to make his heat pump more efficient in the winter time by using solar heat to uh, help 
heat it up and put the heat in the house? Basic answer for that is no, there's no easy way to do it. But I ended up talking about heat pumps in three types, air-to-air, ground-loop, and well-water heat pumps, and what the advantages and disadvantages were. And I said he had the wrong type of heat pump. He had an air-to-air, which is about as inefficient as it gets. Well, he wrote me back with some clarifying details, and I'm here to clarify those details for you. His, his, his AC unit died out in July in southern Ohio, and it was hot. And so his old AC unit was dead. Now, a new AC unit was going to cost about $42.50 installed. And for $750 more, he could get not just an AC system, he could get an air-to-air heat pump. And so it would not only cool his house really well, but it had all the all the potential to heat his house for most of the winter. Colder it gets, the less efficient the uh, air-to-air heat pump gets. But he has a oil-fired forced air furnace in the house. That was the method of heating the house, was fuel oil, through a forced air furnace. Now, I know a lot of fuel oil uh, house heating systems are fuel oil boilers to hydronic heat along the walls of the house. Not this guy. I verified it. He's got a forced air furnace that, that runs off of heating oil. Heating oil, basically diesel fuel, stores almost forever, especially if you add treatment to it, and it works very good. Now, they did not have the money at the time to do a ground loop or the well method, as I explained. They had to have AC now. It was hot, so they spent the $5,000. So what I want to say is this. He got a completely second way of heating his entire house for an extra $750. Now, I think that is what you call smart thinking. So he has an all-electric option and an oil-fueled option. If one breaks, he's got the other. Plus, he's got the AC system. So I I so much like this that I'm going to offer a suggestion. Now, in the Midwest area, we all have basements, and our furnaces are in our basements. And in the south and the southwest, houses do not have basement and they have the furnace is usually in some closet or furnace room or it's in the attic space and sometimes it's actually on the roof especially true in the southwest now let's say you don't have natural gas and you have a nice homestead or bug out location slash second home in the rural area up in sticks and you have a big propane pig for your propane fuel. A pig is the big tank of propane uh, that's outside. They come in 250, 500,000 gallon tanks normally. I think it would be a really smart idea to put in an oil-based forced air furnace in your attic and have, have it blow hot air down from vents in your ceiling. And now these... These furnaces cost less than $2,000. 
if you shopped around, you could probably get the whole thing for that much installed. 250-gallon oil tanks are on Craigslist, and they're cheap. So you could get extra oil tanks easily, have the truck come by and fill them up. Now, what I think is really smart is that there's not much of a difference between number two diesel fuel and heating fuel oil. Have your fuel tanks filled with off-road, non-tax, dyed farm diesel fuel. It just isn't that much more money, maybe 20, 30 cents. So now you have 250 or 500 or 1,000 gallons of number two diesel fuel for your home heat, and you have diesel fuel stored for your generator or vehicles that run on diesel. You're killing three birds with one stone. Uh, Don't forget to add PRI-D for diesel into your diesel tanks. You can also use 55-gallon polyethylene drums, blue or white, for holding diesel fuel outside of your house just perfect. It's not going to blow up and burn your house down any more than the gun in the corner of your room is going to shoot someone. Let's look at another form of backup heat for the house. Electric baseboard heat. They're either 120 or they're 240 volts based. Obviously, if they're 240 volts based, they're a separate circuit. You got an electrician come in, wire them up. But there are 1,000 watt and 1,500 watt, 120-volt ones that can run off of one circuit. Just plug them into the wall. These are available at Home Depot or Lowe's or the Internet. They run along the bottom of the wall, can be custom-wired or plugged into the wall, or plugged into a generator. And they have thermostats on them, generally, or they can be controlled by a thermostat. I work a lot in my den where I'm recording this right now, and it's a slab. The rest of the house is over a basement. And so this part of the den that sticks out gets a bit colder because it's got the sliding glass doors and the fireplace. It gets a bit colder in here, and I use a temperature-controlled little electric heater when I'm in here to keep it just a little bit warmer than the rest of the house. The rest of the house is usually on 67 or 68. Well, if you have a 7, 8, or 10 kilowatt generator at home, not only could you run the electric baseboard heat from it, but you could also probably run your heat pump. So if you did not have this option for that form of heat and you did not want to go the oil route, then I would suggest the electric baseboard heat. At least you can keep one room of your house nice and warm. And more of the house warm if you so desire. Don't heat the house to heat the room to heat the person. Either heat the person or have the right clothing, never cotton or wool, all all synthetic only, to keep you warm or have the electric heating unit real close to you. So you have a blizzard, the wind is blowing, and you have your propane pig run out of propane. They just could not get there before the storm hit. Or it was like it was a few years ago when there was a shortage of propane and the prices were up really high. You either power up your oil-fired forced air furnace or power up your pellet wood stove, and I love pellet stoves, or you fire up your generator because you have gasoline stored, don't you? 
and it runs what you need to run in the house, and it runs electric-resistant baseboard heaters in the house. Go look at these electric baseboard heaters on HomeDepot.com. They're cheap, 30 bucks to 80 bucks, depending on the wattage, the voltage, and the size. Also, when your furnace cracks its heat exchanger and you have CO in the house and all your CO alarms go off, you have them, don't you? You can instantly transition to electric, electric baseboard heat and not have a serviceman get there right now in the coldest part of the year and completely financially rape you because he knows he can because you're cold you have no heat in the house. Oh, we're doing just fine. Our baseboard heat's taking care of us. Okay, you can come. Yeah, if you want to come Thursday in two days, that's fine. Come Thursday. No, I'm not in a rush for you to get here. Yeah, we're going to call around, get some better prices. Yeah, you and at least two other people. Okay, we'll see you two on Thursday. So the guy comes over, gives you an estimate. But the thing is, you're not in a hurry because you were prepared. You thought ahead. You bought yourself a second parachute at a bargain basement price, and it utilizes what you have, electricity. So what if it costs more money than, uh, you know, heating with natural gas or propane does? You heat your house for a week or two days or, or overnight. And that saves you a lot of money from getting raped by the AC and furnace people. When they come over, it's like, oh, you don't have any heat. You're freezing cold. Your kids are miserable. Your wife's complaining at you. The dog's barking. Oh, the dog pissed on the floor, and it's a frozen yellow ice rink now. Oh, yeah, I can charge you double. No, we can avoid all that. So two is one, one is none, and when you have none, make sure you have at least clothing, blankets, sleeping bags, and two-liter bottles full of hot water from your propane emergency stove to help keep you warm at night. This is a slightly nasally congested Steve Harris saying thank you very much for your excellent question. I love doing two-parters like this where I can give you good advice, get straightened out, and then give you even better advice. If you want to see all the stuff I have on preparedness, and the vast majority of it is free, and I did it with Jack, go to Stephen1234.com. Thank you, and keep on sending in the questions. Good stuff from Stephen Harris. As always, next up, I have a question for Keith Snow on grass-fed beef. Hey, Jeff Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Michael's question about grass-fed beef and um, cooking it properly to avoid, avoid uh, toughness. Now, I'm just a little bit of background for those of you that don't know. Grass-fed beef is just that, fed grass, which is a natural diet for a ruminating animal like a cow. And when they eat a diet like that, the meat is generally healthier, has higher levels of CLA, but also um, significant le- significantly less fat. Um, grain-fed and grain-finished beef has a lot more fat, and when you're looking at the harvest of beef, only about 2% of it is classified as prime, and that's the meat with the highest marbling in it. Everything else is generally going to be choice. Now, 
those rankings or um, classifications don't really matter when you're talking about grass-fed beef because it comes from local farmers usually and you have it processed at smaller processing plants. But you will deal with the fact that the meat tends to be a little tougher. Now, um, some proper techniques to cook meat like this um, certainly involve a little bit of marination. That helps. Not a tremendous amount, but it does help to give some flavor. The second thing is how long you cook it. If you're the type of person that likes well-done meat, you're definitely going to be less happy with um, grass-fed because, again, it has much less fat and tends to be a little tougher. Now, one thing I would suggest, Michael, is getting something called a jacquard. I'll give Jack a link, or he can probably find one. Um, it's this little simple device, about $20, and essentially it's um, – I don't know how many, but a bunch of little, very sharp blades. And you place this jacquard on the meat and just kind of pop it up and down a few times. And it puts little teeny holes in the meat. And what that's doing is tenderizing the meat because the reason you're finding it tough or you have long fibers of meat and those tend to be a little chewy. So if you break those down a bit, two things happen. The meat cooks a little more quickly, roughly, you know, 25% or so faster, but it also is going to be a little tender. Now, um, you mentioned in your your question there that you did a stir-fry with New York Strip, and it was tough. Now, New York Strip is definitely a pretty chewy cut. Even a good, um, you know, USDA prime New York Strip is going to give you some, some tooth, some chew. A prime rib or a ribeye generally has more fat in it. That's going to be um, a better choice. Now, you don't want, you know, square chunks of meat in a stir-fry that – generally doesn't work and you usually go for the, the cheaper cuts now i'm including a link um for jack to put in the show notes and it's just to give you an idea about slicing the meat this is a grilled skirt steak with onion cream it has to happens to be in my paleo beef course at tastyeducation.com but you can click on the link uh, in the show notes here and watch the video and the most important thing is at the end of the video i talk about slicing against the grain now many people um will get a good piece of meat, they'll cook it properly, and they're just not aware of slicing against the grain. Now, it's easy to see in a cut like flank steak or uh, skirt steak because you can see those lines running. Now, if you cut with the lines, you will have very chewy meat. You have to cut against the grain or against those uh, lines or fibers in the meat. And what that does, it's breaking those long fibers. It's the same thing that jacquard is going to do um, is break the fibers down and help it chew more easily. So do check out the video and just see about slicing. And it, the same thing with steaks. If you take them and, you know, slice them on the bias a little thin, they tend to be easier to chew and, and more tasty. So I hope these tips help you uh, overall. Um, it just takes a little uh, getting used to when you're cooking with grass-fed beef, but it's definitely the better choice um, in every way because when you take a cow and send it to a feedlot where it's cramped in with a zillion other cows, um, it's not sanitary, the food that they're given is not good, um, everything about it is horrible, and they go to a pretty bad slaughterhouse from there. So when you're dealing with grass-fed, those cows are out on grass their whole lives. Um, they're not stressed out. And more importantly, their body is not stressed out because they're getting their natural diet, and that is really key. So you want to be eating animals uh, that are having their, their natural food. Otherwise, you're just, um, you know, generally gonna gonna have some problems. So that's my take on it. I hope you enjoy your steaks in the future, and 
I wish everybody listening a Merry Christmas. Do check out my website, Food Storage Feast. Uh, the course is on sale right now. And uh, thanks for supporting Jack and Harvest Eating. Take care. Some good stuff from Keith there. Um, I'll throw a few dish additional thoughts in. Number one, I have not ever really found grass-fed beef in itself to be tough. I have found many people make beef tough through a variety of ways. One of the primary ways is by cooking it too long and to too high of a temperature. The number one thing you can do to keep grass-fed beef, especially when you're talking steaks, from being tough is don't cook it well done. At the very most, light pink, like a medium well-ish, but not quite medium well. The proper place for your steak is somewhere north of 145 degrees in the medium, medium rare world. If you do that, you will seldom have a piece of steak be tough. Another reason that steak ends up being tough and beef ends up being tough in general is generally the cuts are too thin. So when you're dealing with your butcher or your supplier, getting thicker cuts of meat, which makes it easier to actually cook to those temperatures, helps a lot. When you get into roasts and things like that, generally it's just not an issue because you cook it in a totally different way. So that's one thing. Another thing, though, that you can do, and this is called poor man's filet mignon, and people usually use it on crappy cuts of meat like a, a London broil or something. It's called salting a steak. But you don't have to just use it on crabby cuts of meat. I will say it doesn't do well unless you have thick pieces of meat in the order of three quarters of an inch to an inch and a quarter. One inch I find to be about the perfect thickness. The way you do this, you want to use a coarse salt like a kosher salt. Um, you know, a, a, you don't want to use fine salt for this. And take your steak. And dry in them very well. Get the, the and they're going to be much even better dried when you're done with doing this. And then put salt all over one side of it. Flip it over and salt the other side. I'm talking till you can't see the meat anymore. Oh my God, it's ruined. No, calm down. It's okay. I've done this before. I am a professional, at least at this. Let it sit. 15 minutes per inch. That means a three-quarter inch steak will sit for 45 minutes. A one-inch steak will sit for one hour. A one-and-a-quarter inch piece of meat will sit for one hour and 15 minutes. At that time, take running water and rinse all the salt off the steak. Then cook it however you like. I will also say at this point, though, again, give it a good towel drying. Set it somewhere and let it sit for maybe 10 minutes at least before you cook it, um, and then season as you like. What this does is it draws out all the blood and water, and it's almost like, in some ways, a rapid dry aging. It does not have the, um, the biological fermentation breakdown of the proteins. But the salt acts as a tenderizer, and it pulls out excess moisture. Nothing screws up steak or meat of any kind like too much moisture in the meat. If you want that nice, beautiful sear, you want good flavor, you want all of that stuff, you do not want to boil meat. Boiling is for soups, not for cooking. So we want that sear, that sizzle, then we want dry. And you get very, very dry. And I don't mean dry like when you eat it, it's dry like you don't like it. I mean it's not soaking wet. Okay? Because when you put wheat, meat on a pan, on a grill, whatever, and immediately water starts pouring out of it, it starts boiling, 
Even though you think you're frying it, you screw it up, and that will also toughen meat. But boiled meat's tender. Slow-simmered, slow-boiled meat for a long time is tender. Quickly boiled meat, until you give it more time to break down, is tough as shoe leather. So those are my additions. I recently did this with some deer steak. Uh, what I do with my back legs on my deer is I, I separate the muscles out, and I se separate them into roasts. And then I put those roasts in those freezer bags and, and you know uh, vacuum seal bags and vacuum seal them. I do that because then I can take one out and decide I'm going to cook it as a small roast in a smoker. Or I'll cook the whole thing like a big steak uh, on the grill, depending on what muscle group it is or what have you. And I'm not locked in to my choices. I've just left the muscle whole. Uh, I took one out the other day because Dorothy was going to eat some leftover fish that I had made for fish tacos. And I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to eat one. I took a smaller piece out of about um, probably three-quarters of a pound. It was lower leg off the back side, which is a fairly tough piece of meat. I cooked it exactly like I just described, only I only waited 45 minutes because I needed to get cooking. It was good. It would have been better if I waited the extra 15 minutes. It was a fairly thin roast, but I cut it in one-inch slices, and it makes it a little harder when the total body size of the meat is not quite what you're looking for, but you do want to put the salt on the end grain. So I cut it in one-inch sliced. It almost looked like short ribs. It was fantastic. Let me give you a little tip here. I took uh, my Nutri-Ninja. I threw a few cloves of garlic in there, a handful of parsley, uh, some peppercorns, some thyme, some uh, rosemary, and uh, some paprika, and I blended that into a gookie paste. I then took the gookie paste and applied about an equal amount of softened butter we do not use margarine in the Spirico household if you use margarine you are dead to me if you do this with it it will not work you need butter you're making a compound butter I took that compound butter and I rubbed it into the meat where the end because when you put the salt on it it opens up the end grain you can see into the meat I rubbed it into the meat I cooked it in a very hot cast iron skillet to about a medium rare And I would have actually liked to have taken that to a medium. It was a little bit underdone even for me because the batteries died in my thermometer. So I didn't get it bang on exactly what I like, but it was good. I served it with a little bit of the compound butter next to it. And as you're eating it, you put a little compound butter on it. Oh, man. But here's what I did with it the next day. I had one piece left. I cut it into thin strips. And, yes, I broke paleo. I rolled it in a little bit of flour, and I deep fried it. Holy crap, was that good. So there's some ideas for you. You can do that with any red, any meat, really, but really red meat, that method. And again, thick pieces to do the salted thing. If you're not sure about it, look it up on YouTube. You'll see a bunch of guys making crappy cuts into decent cuts of meat, but you can make a great cut of meat into even better cut of meat. With that, got another one for Keith, this one on copper cookware. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating and Food Storage Feast. Josh, you finally got yourself some awesome French cookware, some copper pots, and congratulations to you on that. Now, um, these do come with some challenges. Uh, back in 2012, I think it was, we were filming 20 episodes of Harvest Eating TV, and uh, we constantly ran into a, an ugly word in the film business, which is continuity. So that means when you film one scene and you've got a shiny copper pot that looks all beautiful, and then in the next scene you need a different size pot and that one isn't shiny and beautiful, 
it sticks out like a sore thumb. And that's something that uh, filmmakers always deal with, continuity. You don't have to worry about it so much in your home kitchen, but let me just kind of wax on a little bit about these pots. Now, I have a set. Mine are Maviel. They're definitely French. And um, and you can get good ones from Belgium, too. Um, but generally, the good good stuff is, is coming from France. And there's several things about these. They're very heavy, number one. So a lot of wives don't like them. My, my wife can't stand them because even a small, you know, one-and-a-half-quart little sauce pot, I mean, that thing has got some heft to it. And then they've got giant cast-iron handles. Those things get really hot. That's another issue in your kitchen. Um, you know, be sure to kind of give a warning to, to people that kind of meander about the stove because uh, some some cookware has little, um, you know, sort of like heat spacing in the handle so the heat doesn't travel all the way out the handle. If you have one of these on the stove for any length of time, the handle will be ripping hot right to the tip. So, you know, the, the universal thing in, in, the, in the culinary world is if you've got a hot pot with a hot handle you put a towel on it little folded up dry kitchen towel so keep that in mind now that's a good thing because that tells you how evenly these type of pots and pans cook and they also are extremely stingy with the heat so whatever heat you give it it tends to absorb now i've got some um what what would you call them cast aluminum um cookware so it's a uh, it's cast aluminum and it does not I mean, eventually it will get hot. It does cook evenly, but it wastes so much heat. I mean, you can put these things on the stove right next to on the same exact burner size, the same burner setting, you know, about the same size pot of um, one of these cast aluminum and then my French copper. The French copper is ready to cook in 20% of the time. It's just because it absorbs the heat so much better than uh, other pans. So, these are going to give you your best results with high heat sauteing and just overall cooking is much more um, even. There's no hot spots. I also have um, a uh, crepe or crepe pan that's, um, you know, French copper, and that thing is brilliant. That has a stainless steel um, interior. It's usually 1810 stainless. That's probably the case of what you have. But that little, um, it's actually, it's not that little, but that crepe pan is beautiful. I mean, I can... Um, just put a teeny little, um, you know, spray of oil or rub a little butter on there and then dry it off with a towel and, um, the batter never sticks. It's perfectly golden brown everywhere. So these are really good pans and these are, you know, they're investment quality because, I mean, unless you drop it out the back of your pickup truck, you really can't hurt these. So they're going to maintain, um, their value through time, which is why I love them so much. And I just like the way they look. Now, about the looks and maintenance, the 1810 inside, you know, generally hot soapy water with a, you know, one of the Scotch Bright things is going to take care of the inside. You do want to pay attention to the rivets because around those round rivets on the inside, you can tend to get food collecting and and stuck you want to pay some special attention to make sure that those rivets are clean and overall that's really all you need to do to the inside now the outside's a different story this is copper and it will burnish or you know um, turn funny It, it develops a patina and if you cook with it for a long time they will become really really dark now i don't mind that because of the amount of work now um probably like you in the beginning, you want to keep them all shiny and, and sweet looking, and it does take some work. They last a couple of cooks before they start going to a funny color. What I use is Barkeeper's 
Friend, I think it's called. You can get it in just about any store. And a little green scrubber pad. Um, also a little bit of kosher salt mixed in there does help because you're looking for some abrasive qualities. You don't want it to be too wet. So, you know, wet the pot, wet the green thing, and then put the barkeeper's helper on there. But you're looking for more of a thick paste that you can scrub with. You don't want it to be real liquidy because it doesn't come off as easy. But you only need to do that, I don't know, once a month maybe, once every three weeks, and they'll stay nice and shiny. But I would uh, render a guess that you'll probably grow tired of that over time. Um, actually, I just cleaned one of mine the other day, that very one and a half quart stock pot I mentioned earlier. What I did with that, this is uh, actually kind of scary, but I had um, butter and sugar. I was making a glaze. So it was a bunch of brown sugar and butter. And I had it on the stove. And then the doorbell rang. And like a genius, I went outside and I was talking to the neighbor. And um, my kids came running out of the house, smoke, smoke. I'm like, oh no, what did I do? So I ran back in there and we had to open up all the windows and, you know, the vent was cranked. And I burnt that sugar onto that pan. I mean, most people would have thrown the pan out. I looked at it and said to my wife, wow, this is never going to come off. I mean, it was like cement, black, hard cement on the bottom of that pan. So here's a tip for you people. My wife said, don't worry, don't worry. And I tried to scrape it with a butter knife. I mean, you could not move this stuff off of there. So her little tip was to fill it up just above where it was burnt because it wasn't burnt. It was like three inches up the pot. Fill it up with water, and then we put about a quarter cup of um, the other scrubbing stuff, like Comet, I guess you could call it, or Ajax. We put a little of that in there and put it on the back burner on a very low simmer just so where it's barely simmering. And I tell you what, she says it will loosen it right up and it'll take about an hour. After about an hour, I went in there and that stuff came right off and the pan was not damaged. I mean, it looked like it just came out of the factory. So I was super relieved that I didn't kill my wonderful pan. And I went on to take the barkeeper's uh, friend and I scrubbed the outside. And now that one pan out of my collection is super clean. So um, as far as tips with cooking, just remember that they do um, tend to, I mean, people that are unfamiliar with them, you can burn stuff because they get really hot. I mean, they absorb that heat and hold on to it. So just watch your heat. But overall, I think you're going to love the experience of cooking on these. And definitely, definitely don't let them go in the dishwasher because that is a no-no. And just with any kind of cookware, one thing that um, isn't very good. When you're done cooking, usually, you know, you're getting the food served. It doesn't take much time to take that pot and put it into the sink and get some water in it and helps to loosen the things up. If you just leave it sitting um, and let everything crust on there, it's just much more work later. So I always try to do that. It's the same thing with my knives. When I'm done cutting, I never let them just sit around and get crusty. I'll immediately take them. They're always washed separately and put away. Never put in a sink or on top of any, you know, clean stuff in the in the sink so josh that's it man i hope you enjoy those um pots and pans uh i think you've got a great situation there and uh, anytime you can get something that good it's very nice so merry christmas everybody do check out foodstoragefeast.com and we'll see you all in the new year take care so my little follow-up there has nothing to do actually with all the stuff Keith was talking about. It just made me think of it while I was listening to the answer. Um, I got a trick for you to more more rapidly defrost frozen pieces of meat. To, to make the most of this, when you freeze a piece of meat, make sure you freeze it in a single layer. 
So if you have two steaks going into a bag, set them side by side, not on top of each other. When you grind your own burger uh, or package burger, you buy large amounts of it, and you put like a pound into a package, don't make it into a big tube like they do from the butcher place from the deer. Flatten it in the bag so that it's, you know, maybe an inch thick and it's square. And in that way, you'll have a nice flat surface area. By the way, it will store in your freezer far more space conscious if you do this. You will be able to stack your meat and store a lot more in the space available. All right. Now, when you take it out, take a, a metal pan, any metal pan, but maybe the heavier, uh, the more uh, of a heat sink that it is, the better. Anything that generally will act as a place that will conduct heat will also, in opposite circumstances, conduct cold. Um, if you have a stove that is either a gas stove or a conventional electric stove, those suck, but they're good for this. Anything that actually, like, the pan will sit on it, but there's empty space below it instead of, like, an induction top um, or a glass top, set the pan there. If you don't have that, it doesn't really matter where you set, set the pan somewhere. Take your meat and put it on the pan. That's all you do. If you doubt me, take two pieces of relatively the same size meat, put one down in the sink, one on a plate, however you normally do it, and put one piece on the pan and see how quickly it defrosts. Now, people are going, Jack, you're going to die because it's supposed to defrost over a day in the refrigerator. And Okay, if you want to do that, go ahead. I've been doing this my whole life. Now, do not, I'm going to repeat, do not take out a steak that you're going to cook tonight Stick it on a pan like that this morning at 6.30 when you walk out to go to work and leave it sit there at room temperature until, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock when you come back to the door. That would be a bad idea. But if you're going to defrost a steak that you want to cook in about an hour or two, do this. And a one-inch steak will completely thaw in an hour and a half to two hours this way and come up to room temperature, which is where it should be when you cook it anyway. I'm just saying, give it a try, you'll like it. One of the best pans for doing this, if you have one, is the griddles. The griddles that, that when you flip them one side, they're flat, and you flip them the other side, they're like a little grill, they're ridged. Put the ridged side up, lay your steak on that, or your piece of, you know, your package of burger, whatever it is. It's something about the way those act, like, again, they look like the fins of a heat sink, right? So a heat sink can become a cold sink. So what it's going to do is it's going to draw the opposite temperature into itself. So if there's if it's hotter outside of itself, it pulls the heat in. If it's colder outside of itself, it pulls the cold in and dissipates it. It really works. There's your uh, your bonus this year from Jack at the Survival Podcast for your kitchen use. Speaking of meat and cooking and all that stuff, we've kind of had a theme going today. Uh, how about Gary Collins on something called the carnivore diet? Sounds like something I can get into. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of PrimalPowerMethod.com, where I consider the ultimate website for all things improving your life and making it better, such as life simplification, The Primal Lifestyle, Paleo Diet, Living Off the Grid, More Remotely, or even my mobile-slash-travel trailer lifestyle. And I also answer entrepreneur questions and occasional author questions, as I am an author. So, and I will be, I'm working on my mobile living travel trailer book. It will be out in the next six months. I'll be looking out for that. It's going to be fantastic, I promise. But uh, this is a good, good question. I actually listened to the exact same interview. 
uh, with Dr. Baker, I believe, in the carnivore diet. The carnivore diet's been around a long time. I will argue thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. We know there are populations that would primarily survive off animal flesh. That is the carnivore diet. So think of it this way. There's some small variations, and Dr. Baker talked a little bit about it for us. They allow some nuts, seeds, cheese, eggs, those kinds of things. But primarily your calories will be based off what the animal contains. Remember, we used to eat everything, eyeballs, tongue, brain, skin, you know, liver, heart, lungs, you know, everything. I mean, we'd even crack open the bones to get the bone marrow. And with that, you know, with the nutrient profile, I was actually screaming, like I said, I'm into my phone when Joe asked the question, well, wouldn't you be missing certain, you know, micronutrients and vitamins? And the answer is no. Here's why. We will be what that animal consumes. And I hope I, I don't know if I said that right, but think of what that animal is consuming. So we wouldn't be just eating one type of animal. We're going to be eating carnivores, omnivores, herbivores. So they're going to be getting a wide nutrient profile of what they're eating. We're consuming the animal. So that's going to be locked away in their muscle tissue, connective tissue in their joints, bone marrow, obviously their fat, their brain, you name it. And again, we'd eat everything, even entrails. We'd eat it, eat it all. So I was going, because when he asked that, I went, Joe, you're eating what the animal eats. You're not going to be missing anything. It's all there. It's all there. And, 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 and I think Dr. Baker was on to something, too, by saying, and we've discussed this, we do know that high diets high in sugar and refined carbohydrates actually block the absorption and assimilation of certain micronutrients and vitamins. It, it just, that's what happens. So I believe today the RDA requirements or recommended daily allowances of many vitamins, minerals is skewed because we're dealing with a diet that we're not really adapted to. So if we were to go back, it would be interesting if we could look and see what the nutrient profile would be of someone from 100,000 years ago. I bet it would be very, very different than what it is today. So it kind of killed two burns with one stone there. So we know that the nutrients are there. And I know, I think, I can't remember if Joe asked this or not, but the vitamin C question came out and Dr. Baker explained it one way of how the carbohydrate diet, it makes the vitamin C requirement shoot straight up. And that is true because there, they do, we do know, and there have been studies done that red meat contains more than enough vitamin C where you won't get scurvy and you will not have any deficiencies. Scurvy on ships was, it was blamed on not having enough vitamin C because the fruits, or primarily the fruits and vegetables would go rot first and they would be, have to be consumed first and obviously meat too. So they were eating a diet high in refined carbohydrates and sugar and booze. So what would you end up with? Scurvy because you have no vitamin C. It wasn't that you didn't have fruits and vegetables because you also didn't have any red meat. So there's a lot of interesting information in this. Now with the, the, instead of intermittent fasting, he called it intermittent feasting. This is totally true. We know this to be true in animals. They will literally gorge themselves silly. You could see it in, the, in a domesticated dog. If you leave them just a huge bowl of food, they will eat themselves silly to where their belly is just bulging out and they're sitting, they're just panting 
trying to digest all that food. Remember, in 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 the wild, in the in our natural habitat, it's feast or famine. I mean, that's where that that saying comes from. When you have food, you've got to eat it, and you got to eat as much as you possibly can in order to survive. If you were being picky and going, ah, oh, you know what? I'm only going to have you know, uh, you know, one of the my, main cuts off that animal, and I'm only going to eat the muscle tissue, and that's it. You would die in nature in a heartbeat. You would not make it very long. So. With that, stomachs will expand a great deal. Now, obviously, we're not used to that because we're eating all the time, snacking all the time, smaller meals, which there are places for smaller meals, and I use it in my program. But that's totally different. That's not what we're talking about. That's to stabilize blood sugar in people in the modern American who is obese and way overweight. Totally different. So him eating six pounds of meat is not necessarily illogical. It, it actually makes sense. Now, you got to remember, too, if you didn't hear him, I believe he weighs around 240 pounds. This is a big dude. And I'm not talking fat. He's a big guy. He's a power lifter, won many competitions. I think he holds world records. I mean, the guy, the guy's legit. So I would say, you know, for me, if I went out and ate six pounds, I couldn't do it. I mean, you just, I couldn't do it. I'm not that big. And for most of us, and he's worked his way up to it. You would have to produce more hydrochloric acid and pepsin like we discussed in the last question that I answered about the late, the uh, guy's wife that had problems digesting or got sick eating red meat. That, that was probably why. It could be something else, but more than likely that was it. So Dr. Baker's had a long time in the individuals who practice this diet to adapt. Their, their, their bodies have adapted to it. So I hope that kind of answers it. Uh, there was some really interesting questions that came up that I, I do believe were not answered adequately. Because uh, I, I, I mean, I'm not all-knowing, but there was a couple that I'm like, hey, I know the answer to that. Um, so this guy's not a freak of nature. And this diet, even though in today's world seems a little unique, I would say overall, you've got to obviously do this with and work with your doctor, disclaimer, but I do not believe it is an unhealthy diet. That's my simple answer. And I've experimented with it over the years, not long term, but I've done a week of eating only animal flesh and animal products only with no negative health consequences whatsoever. Uh, I, I agree with him. I actually felt really good. It, it is hard to sustain. You know, the diet can get pretty bland. I mean, it's pretty basic. But, you know, if you got used to it, I don't see it being a problem because you need to eat for fuel and not eat for orgasmic sensory pleasure like we do today as Americans. Every meal has to be, you know, a basically digestion orgy and taste orgy of some sort. And that's where we have to break away from that is the overstimulation of our senses in the sense of taste. I mean... You know, my dog eats to survive. I mean, I guarantee that I've tasted the dog food and you know, all that interesting. And we feed them the same thing over and over again and they eat it. And that's a topic for another time, uh, killing our pets too. But, uh, uh, animals in the, in the natural world would not have a whole lot of variation of what they would consume either. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. I hope that helps. Thanks a lot. And, uh, make sure to send all your questions direct, directly to Jack. I will not answer them. Just kidding, Jack. Go ahead and put them in the comment section or you guys know how to get a hold of me. I've got a contact form on my webpage, primalpowermethod.com.
Thanks again. Good stuff from Gary. I, I tend to pretty much agree with like 99% of what he said there. I, I, I do think um, that we are disconnected with our roots as beings, as, as animals. I know some people get really bent and twisted sideways when you describe human beings as animals, but um, I don't think to be called an animal is an insult unless the insult is intended. So if we look at what we have on the planet as far as life forms, we pretty much have plants, we have animals, and then we have things like fungi that are somewhere in the middle. Uh, but we are an animalistic type life form. Any, like, intelligence that came here that was above us that looked down on this planet would say that's the highest order of animal on the planet. And the reason I point that out is because so then we do have certain adaptations based on our environment and as we evolved mentally and developed our own systems of food production and things like that, we separated from the way we evolved as part of nature. And you don't have to, you know, get twisted if you have religious convictions about that. It's it's still the case. It doesn't really have anything to do with whether you're created or evolved. We, when I say evolved in this context, and I'm not talking about coming out of a protozoa. I'm talking about if you take an entity of any sort, any sort of animal, and it lives in a certain way for fifty thousand or a hundred thousand years, it is going to adapt to its environment. And we very much adapted as hunter-gatherers to what the earth provided. And our primary thing that we consumed was meat through hunting and scavenging. And we brought, Gary's right. We ate every, eyeballs, tongue. If you look at traditional societies today where they still live a hunter-gatherer or a hybrid hunter-gatherer, small uh, agricultural lifestyle... When they kill an animal, whether it's game or whether it's a, a goat or something that they tend, the most valuable things in it are the tongue, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the organ meats. They're reserved to the adults. Children are, are forced to eat things like backstrap, right? Where we find that is the most valuable thing. And uh, there's, there's, there's a lot to this that I think we can learn from, and it's why I've always been a fan of uh, studying the diets of primitive peoples and trying to at least emulate it to some level because I do believe it's what we're designed to eat. I also agree with Gary on our dogs. I do think, it, by and large, we should be feeding our dogs more meat. It's, it can be expensive to do, and there's inexpensive ways to do it. We're actually researching some ways right now to try to drive the cost down comparable to food, you know, regular dog food. If we can get it there, that's all they're going to eat. That's that's I mean that's just a, a done deal at that point. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk to you about three different things here at the end of today's show. It might be a little shorter than a typical show as we finish up the year. But number one, the, the hell's going on with the drop in Bitcoin? I got emails from people saying, Jack, you said if Bitcoin was in fifteen thousand dollar range again, something bad was going on. Yeah, and that's because I actually expected Bitcoin to like end the year at around twenty thousand or higher, and not deal with what it's dealing with now until it was up there. Um, and I, I, the same show I talked about this in, I said, look for Bitcoin Cash to go on a tear in January because Coinbase says that's when they're adding Bitcoin Cash to Coinbase. And Coinbase being the place that every new person seems to go when you first want to buy some crypto. And when something's in there, it makes it where you can buy it with your bank account or a credit card or what have you, which is 
difficult to do in many exchanges. Exchanges are great for turning Bitcoin into Litecoin or turning Litecoin into Ethereum or whatever, but to spend cash and buy crypto, the easiest company usually is Coinbase. So when they add something, it always gets a huge bump. Additionally, when they added it, anybody that was holding Bitcoin in Coinbase before the fork got their Bitcoin cash. And what this did is it, it sparked a rash of buying. And there's a lot of people out there that have made a lot of money on Bitcoin. And people that have you know a couple million dollars or more in holdings of Bitcoin, once it became easy for them to buy, uh, a lot of them, even though they, they could have went and done it on exchange anytime they wanted, they started buying the hell out of it when it hit Coinbase. Because they knew it was coming. So in many instances, I think people are selling Bitcoin to buy Bitcoin cash. And, and that's the reason for all this volatility. However, it's had a hard-ass floor in the mid-15s. I have an app on my phone uh, where I can you know, put my old portfolio in and stuff like that and watch it. And I, it, it, it like blinks red and green, red and green every time a crypto goes higher or lower than its current position. And it looks like a damn Christmas tree. Um, and I've just watched Bitcoin just ping pong between 15, 16, 17,000, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and it, 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 it seemed to hold its own there. And that, that says a lot with that level of volatility holding its own there. So I'm not saying jump in now. I'm just saying, you know, you might not get much more of a correction than that $15,000 range if you've been waiting to pick up some more. Again, I'm holding everything. It's important for me since I've talked so much about crypto over the last couple of years that I am transparent with you with my personal decisions so that no one can ever come back to me and say, well, you, were, well, you said to do this or you said to do that. I've never said to do anything. I've simply disclosed what I'm doing because I think that's the right and responsible thing to do when you have as many people listening to you as I do with this show. So there you go. That's what I think the hell is up. Because that's what, what the hell is up. I got like 20 emails that said that. That's what the hell is up with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. Uh, hitting the largest single exchange where you have a tr the ability to, to buy crypto with fiat. As far as I know of in the world, Coinbase is that. Um, next, I've been getting a lot of questions about wicking beds in aquaponic systems, specifically flow-through wicking beds. Now, I've been running flow-through wicking beds uh, since last year when we installed my larger aquaponic system, but I'm getting the feeling that people really didn't understand that because you couldn't see it. So if you haven't seen it yet, I've got a, uh, a project I'm doing called um, the Indoor Aquaponics uh, Project. And I think I've released five episodes, and I have a sixth one that will come out today, and probably a seventh one that should be out by tomorrow. And uh, it, it's the full build-out and things like that. And one of the things that I've added to it is some flow-through wicking beds. And at this point... I'm really, really glad that I've done this because I built them out of the 14-gallon uh, concrete mixing trays. They're in miniature. It's not the best size thing for a wicking bed. Okay, It's a very shallow bed for a wicking bed. But I think it's going to be like excellent for growing microgreens and baby greens. And I think that's an excellent crop to be growing in the winter in an indoor system. You know, we're not looking to grow tomatoes and peppers in that system anyway. So by doing it in miniature, I think a lot of people went, Oh, that's how it works. 
It's just like an ebb and flow bed, except it doesn't have a bell siphon, and there's dirt on top of it. I mean, that's you got an input, and you got a and you got a, a discharge. You got a drain, and you set the height of the drain with an overflow, and you'll run water through it. You fill the bottom up with lava rock, and life is good. Uh, but I've, I've commented a couple times about how effective these these are, and how great they are. And it's prompted people to ask me, like, what's so great about a flow-through wicking bed versus a wicking bed? Because wicking beds, are, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, that, that wicking beds make a lot of sense. You have water beneath the surface, so you have a very effective uh, method of irrigation. It doesn't evaporate. You use less water. The soil never dries out. The plant is never heavily stressed. So I think people well and truly understand wicking beds. It, maybe not their construction, but the, the advantage is pretty simple. And you have that great environment for soil life. Soil life likes moist soil. It doesn't like dry soil. And it doesn't like super wet soil. So what we have when we're irrigating a lot of times is we deep irrigate and we end up saturating the soil and then it just slowly dissipates to the a level that we would like it to be all the time and then gets a little bit drier and then we have to soak it down again, right? Drench it. And it, it's, it's better if it just stays there and wicking beds are one great way to get it to do that, especially when we have a good structure in the soil and our fungus is happy, our beneficial bacteria are happy, our beneficial nematodes are happy, our worms are happy. And if you have happy worms, you have happy plants. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. The difference with flow-through wicking beds is can be seen a lot in what ebb and flow beds do. So I put one big ebb and flow bed on this system that I'm using in these videos. And the, the episode I should have, the new video I should have out for you today, episode 6, one of the things it shows is garlic cloves that I put in the, the ebb and flow bed two days ago. Just two days. Just pulled the cloves out of the garlic and shoved them into the, the media. And two days... They have about three-quarter inch long roots sticking out of the bottom of them. And it'll probably be another day. They'll be poking little green tips up. In another four or five days, they'll have you know green tips that are six, eight inches long sticking up that we can use as chives. If you stick garlic cloves in moist soil, they will do the same thing. They will not have three-quarter inch roots, even in the best circumstances, especially in cold temperatures, in two to three days. They just won't do that. There's something about moving water that encourages plants to grow. So when we take a wicking bed and we do flow through, even though those roots are way up you know, in the dirt and that water is moving way down there, I think we still get a great deal of whatever this... It's, it's not magic... I am sure there is a completely, you know, valid scientific explanation for why this works better. Um, I haven't gone through the trouble to figure out what it is. So what I'm saying is it's almost like magic how this stuff works. You know, you take a, 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 a core of lettuce, you know, uh, from a romaine lettuce plant that has no roots on it that was cut flat off of the soil and you just barely stick it into lava rock or expanded shell or whatever in an ebb and flow bed, and all of a sudden it starts to regrow. If you stick it in dirt, it ain't real happy, even good dirt. It just doesn't work as good. 
It might work, but it don't work the same way. And, you know, you put that head of lettuce or that core of celery into an ebb and flow bed for three or four weeks, and you pull it out, it's got roots coming out of it like crazy. So that thing that moving water does is quite useful. But the other thing that a flow-through wicking bed does is you keep a completely replenished supply of oxygen and nutrient in the soil. And anything that we add to the aquatic system, like an amendment, let's say that we're having a little bit of iron deficiency, so we throw some chelated iron right into the pond. Uh, we can do that without hurting fish, by the way. And it just goes through the whole system. And also that iron is bioavailable in your wicking beds. If it is just on a static, it will get there eventually. But it won't be pulsing through the system. Next, it is healthy for the aquatic part of the system because you're pushing the water through rocks and media and all these little places for beneficial bacteria to live. So you're increasing your filtration. And it's just a better way to do things. Now, here to me is the real magic. There's aquaponics and there's aquatics. And over the years, I've talked a lot about the differences. When you see me building an 1,100-gallon um, timber frame pond, or the one that I'm going to build this, this winter that's going to be more like almost 3,000 gallons, you're not going to do true aquaponics with that. Because, you, I mean, you can. There are commercial aquaponic systems that have far more than 3,000 gallons of water in them, but they also are commercial-level systems. You know, they're usually, you know, under, like, that much water. You're talking, like, a half acre or more of greenhouse or high tunnel or something like that, and there's just massive amounts of plants in them because we have to put massive amounts of fish in them to give us enough nutrient to make it worth doing. But if you have a pond an actual in-the-ground pond. You can do wicking beds that are flow-through, and it'll work great. If you put in a ornamental pond, any kind of system, you know, a koi pond, a garden pond, a timber frame pond, a few stock tanks that have some fish in it that you dress up to look pretty as water features around your home. If you have a pump in there, you can pump them through, flow-through wicking beds, and it doesn't matter that you don't have enough fish to give the plants enough nutrient because you can give the plants all the nutrient they need in the soil like you normally would, but you still get all the benefits of a wicking bed and your aquatic system gets all the benefits of a filtration system. And you still have the ability to do things like mineral amendments and stuff like that. And you're going to have some waste from your fish, creating some level of macro and micronutrient supply to your plants, but you don't have to be completely reliant on it. So that's why, you know, we're doing this large-scale installation this year. Uh, again, we're putting in a pond that will hold close to 3,000 gallons of water. It's primarily going to be a fish-growing system, but we're going to push water through 10, 11, 12 deep wicking beds. And that's why we're going to do it. And if you haven't watched the video series yet, I really encourage you to do so, maybe during some downtime over the holiday if you have it. Um, I've gotten so many emails from people going, the light bulbs are finally going off. I finally get it. It really is simple. It's not hard. Uh, I'm going to put it to you this way. I think it's absolutely shameful that the public indoctrination centers known as our schools, their government school system, uh, takes possession of our children for about 180 days a year, about eight hours a day, 
and then saddles them with hours of additional work after they come home, that they do this for 13 years, and in all that time, they do not teach our children how to make a bell siphon. I think it's actually a sin that we don't teach you. And I would be like, he's joined the aquaponics cult. It's over for him. No, um, I don't care what you end up doing with the knowledge of how a bell siphon works. It is a simplistic scientific principle that can be applied in dozens of ways that changes how you view the world. And if nothing else, you can set up one little bed someplace and you don't have to have a fish involved in the system at all. You can just dump some plant food in it, organic plant food, and make plants and regrow food. The fact that there's a technology, this stupid simple, that regrows food that you would have eaten once and you can eat it three or four or five times instead, and we don't teach people how to do it, that is, that is so foolproof that you can literally set up a system like I'm talking about with like a 100-gallon tank and a 50-gallon tank sitting on top of it for under $200, turn it on, and start growing food now, and we don't teach people how to do it after 13 freaking years. Do you know what 13 years, 8 hours a day, 180 days a year amounts to your children being programmed by the state? So without getting common core with our math, let's just figure out what a year is. So we have 180 days a year times 8 hours a day uh, would be 1,440 hours a year. And then we do that for 13 years to our children, 18,720 hours, and they can't teach them how to feed themselves for 200 bucks? Seriously? This is what we pay thousands of dollars a year for? I, I think this is an important skill set to learn how to do. So please check out the videos that I'm doing, and I want to see lots of you guys building systems, small, large, medium, I don't care. Um, it will improve your self-sufficiency and self-reliance, and it will only seem hard until you do it the first time. Again, I've had people tell me, aquaponics food tastes funny. It's not nutrient-dense. Blah, blah, blah. Quit bullshitting me. Quit pissing in my boot and telling me it's raining. Just tell me the truth. I don't want to learn it. I think it's too complicated, and I don't want to do it. Okay, fine. But don't, don't bullshit me because I've been eating this food for a couple of years now, and I guarantee you you're not going to eat it and say it tastes funny or whatever the whole other kind of bullshit you're going to come up with. Uh, on that note, I just wanted to pause here at the end of this year and, and look back and think, you know, this June will be a decade of TSP, our 10th year anniversary coming this June 20th, which is, you know, shocking to say less, you know, about half a year away, a little more than half a year away right now as we, we come to the end, nine and a half years uh, of another year, 2017 for TSP, other than some rewinds and specials, in the can. Done. When I look at my life, I look at my grandkids, I look at the fact that, you know, yeah, I work during the day when they're here, but I get to see my grandkids almost every day. I get to be part of their lives. Um, I look at my property and, and what what how it's changed over the last four years. I think back to when I was in Arkansas and so many of you guys were cheering me on to get me out of Texas to Arkansas and Having to tell you, like, two years into it, yeah, we're going back because it's not working for my wife and coming and finding this property and realizing that I could finally have a property where I could do things like workshops and handle people showing up. And, you know, I ran an internship with Josiah Wallingford and all of the things that I've been able to do. 
all the way back to that first year when I got on the air early in 2008 and started screaming at people, get your money out of the stock market, and I had people sending me emails that said, thank you. I'm still going to be able to retire because I didn't listen to my financial liar. That rhymed, huh? Um, and I just think about these nine and a half years. The level of gratefulness I have for you guys who have supported me, listened to me, shared my show, purchased memberships, supported my sponsors, done your shopping through T-Spaz is absolutely overwhelming. I, I can't even express the level of gratitude. I, I do, do my best to make this show educational, entertaining, and life-changing. To make sure that it's, it's creating a positive impact on you guys. But without you reciprocating the support, there is no way that we'd be going for our 10th year now. And there's no way we would have done all of the things that we've done or had the opportunity to make the mistakes that we've made over the years, because we certainly have made mistakes over the years. But they've made us stronger. They've made us better. They've made me smarter, I think, to not to do those things again, or when you're going to take another run at something, to do it differently. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I just wanted to take this moment at the end of 2017 and say thank you so much for every single one of you that's taken your time to listen to this show, especially to tell others about it. And I mean that if you started listening this week or if you started listening the first week. Thank you so much, TSP community. And I guess I should say TSP communities. Because that is, to me, when people say, why do you feel that this truly is a success? is the autonomous sub-communities that are out there replicating and doing good things that sprung off of this one, like spokes on a wheel, the Zello channel, the forum, the Facebook group, the other Facebook groups that are from our efforts but not directly tied to us, like the Regenerative Agriculture group, the people that are homeschooling now, that are teaming up on the boards and, and, and comparing notes And they are doing it as a community within a community within a community tied back to this. Um, I don't know what I ever did to get the karma that let me be part of something like this. But whatever it is, I'm glad I did it. Uh, because I could not have more purpose and meaning in my life than I do with the work that I do every day. And I may not be the wealthiest man in the world, and I may never be. Um, but I have wealth, true wealth, in abundance because of you, and thank you for it. On that note, yeah, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com and help me out. I think you all know that, so I'll leave it to be short today. I do have a pretty cool product to recommend for you to consider, though. And uh, it's been in my videos recently. They are Vice Grip Long Nose Pliers. And uh, you can just read the write-up if you want to on them. But they, to me, if you're going to go in aquaponics, you need a set of these. If you watch my videos, you'll see all these times where I'm talking about, well, you can uh, pull the pipe out of your stand-up. And that's why we have this big four-inch pipe. And you stick your hand down there and pull it out and then drain the system down. Or you can pull that pipe out and stick a longer one in there or 
add a add a, a fitting to it and, and bring the water level up and all different types of things like that, maintenance you need to do. Let me tell you something. You think pulling a piece of three-quarter inch pipe out of a, a dry fit fitting uh, would be easy? And it usually is, but when you put it inside one of those systems and it runs for a while, it gets stuck. And you can't pull it out, and you end up screwing up your media excluder and all that. But you take these things, those long nose, and the six-inch size is the one I recommend for this. You can reach down in there and clamp onto it, and then you can just reach in and grab the tip of it and shake it. It comes right out. And that's what makes this a great tool. It's not just for aquaponics. It's you can get into tight spaces and get leverage that you would not otherwise have. Uh, they're about ten bucks. Uh, I have a whole write up on them today, and I have a link in the article as well uh, to the smaller ones, four inches, which are really cool for some other things, and the full size nine inch versions. I also have a link to a ten piece set that includes the six and nine inch long nose and eight other really great tools. This is like 80 bucks for like almost every pair of vice grips ever made. Um, and that's, that's a, a great deal. And there's just so much to do. The, the company I recommend you get vice grips from is the company that actually came out with the term vice grip, and that's Irwin. I-R-W-I-N. And that's the, the tool set and the individual tools I have in this article. If you were going to go off the reservation, another really good manufacturer of, of tools in general uh, is Crescent, who created the original Crescent wrench, and they make some pretty good vice grips. And if you're going to pick them up like at a store instead of ordering them off T-Spaz, I've kind of gone to Cobalt is the new craftsman uh, at Lowe's because everything's lifetime warrantied. I've actually never seen a pair of vice grips break, even cheapos. Uh, so I don't know that it's that important, but uh, that would just be... With hand tools, cobalt has become kind of a, a big-time go-to for me and I think for a lot of other people. Anyway, with that, let's uh, let's have our song of the day today. Our song of the day today, of course, is a Christmas song, and it's called Silent Night. But I'm going to bet like 99 out of 100 of you have never heard this version before. It's instrumental. It's done with three different sets of violin, and it's by an independent artist named Lindsey Sterling. Really beautiful, really great choice by John Adam. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>